Hello, you're listening to the very final Consequential Podcast of 2014, and with me to usher in the end of the old and, and bring about something is Roger Hart. Say hello, Roger. Hello. What are you drinking? Are we going straight into the podcast wine? Yeah, I think we might as well. Well, you know, I've finally gone and done it. I've, uh, I've nabbed us a bottle of the old Beaujolais Nouveau. Well done. Well, well I say nabbed, I went down to an off license and I asked, do you have any Beaujolais Nouveau? And they said, yes, it's very nice this year. And I said, I will have several bottles. Okay. Uh, it tastes like wine for those listening. <laughs> uh, I actually think this is a really good one this year. I don't, I don't know. The last time... So it, it's, uh, it's, like, it's basically Beaujolais, it's not a single whatever, but it's, um, it's Jean Laurent, it's the 2014 Nouveau. Um, Hang on, Beaujolais Village, does that mean they take all of the Beaujolais and shove it in a bucket? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is quite common for the Nouveau, I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. It's, it's not like a swingers party for wine. Well, the last time I had it, I had it with a kebab, so to be perfectly <laughs> honest, this is quite civil. Mm. It's lovely wine. But you've got the banana esters, there's lots of strawberry in this year. A lot of the wine merchants will still have it. It's a little bit overpriced compared to last year, but I would strongly advise nabbing a couple of bottles if you can. Probably not the de because price hike, but this, this shit's good. So what you could also do is spend that money on comics. I suppose. And thankfully, uh, we're, we're here to tell you what the best comics were this year. Mm. So we've both got that a... That we read. That we read, yes. That's, that's always the proviso. I think we read quite broadly. Yes. Um, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do this every two weeks. Uh, so... Yeah, 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 probably right there. Yeah. Um, so we'll do a quick rundown of sort of our long list and then pick out the ones that we genuinely enjoyed. Yeah, so I think what we'll do is... Oh, we enjoyed all of them. Yeah. We'll just pick out the best ones. Yeah, we'll do a sort of meandering whiffle through the stuff that was generally promising and then... uh, And then then anyone who's... um, Keen on a little bit of Krampus erotica is uh, it, you should stick around after the end of the music because Roger will be giving a reading from what's the name of this book? A naughty boy for Krampus. So that's that's going to be nice. We're going to get the log fire roaring, and Roger's going to sit and uh, he's going to read Krampus erotica for you and try not to have a little cry and a wank at the same time. There will be no cry wank, Roger. What have you been reading this year? Fucking hell, that was good. That was that was subverting the usual format. I don't think that counts as subverting the form. Shut up, I said extra words. You're a bellend. Hmm, fair. Um, well, yeah, so... We've got a couple of sections. We've got our best of, and then we've got um, the section we're referring to as still good. Which is basically where we filed all the, filed in all the ongoing shit, otherwise Saga would be in all of our top threes. Yeah, I, th- I think we're, we're mostly sort of focusing on new stuff, so while there are some collections and while Saga and Hawkeye are still very good and Sex Criminals is still very good, we're kind of focusing on new mm. things. Yeah, so kind of honourable mentions or things that were interesting. Um, something I thought would be ongoing but ended um, was the uh, Less Than Fantastic or Less Than Fabulous Adventures of TJ and Amal, which is a webcomic that I think we've mentioned before. We have, yeah. I saw the, um, the writer and artist of that at TCAF, and it had just finished. Cues mm-hmm. um, were for just out, out of the room constantly, just mm-hmm. mobbed the whole time. It's that kind of... Um, it, it's one of those wonderful webcomics, not unlike uh, Prince of Cats for this, actually, that... 
for the first few issues, you can see the kind of art style really settle in. It's almost like you get a, a view on process for free. Um, and it gets really, really good really fast. It's a, it's a road trip, essentially. Um, this guy, Amal, picks up a hitchhiker, TJ. They fall for each other. They both have complex family backgrounds. It gets a bit weird. And then at the end, it's kind of gentle and slow and touching. Um, there's some less gentle, less slow touching in the middle. Uh, it's... Um, it's got a slight sort of yaoi influence, and it's definitely winking to that audience. It's, you know, it's got that slightly Gillan McKelvey from the Tumblers thing going on. Um, but it's, it's, just, it's just really well done and quite, quite affecting. Uh, it, did, do you know if, they, if she did a book? Yes. Yeah, it was collected this right. year. I should probably buy that. Um, no, I would, I would strongly... We have talked about it before, so I won't harp on about it too much, but I would strongly suggest that... Um, that people go and go and take a look at it. Um, on that old internet. On, on, on the internet. Because you've, you know, you've heard about it here, here on the future radio. What else? Sorry. Um, a few other things. Again, I've mentioned most of these before. Like uh, Willow the Wisp, which I wrote a review of, which, which is just, it's gentle and beautiful. It's childlike wonder with slightly gothic hoodoo. It's good, go and read it, it's a beautiful piece of publishing, or read the review. Yeah, Will of the Wisp, it's good. Um, it is not the 1980s cartoon starring Kenneth Williams. Oh god, no, that would be terrifying. I don't, do not do not want. I liked that show, I, I really enjoyed scared, that growing up, I had all the books. Me. Really? Yeah, like, Are you scared of Evil Edna? Maybe. The television, yeah. who's a witch. Yeah. Um, Next. Um, the grand return of Warren Ellis. Well, this whole year has been the grand return of Warren Ellis, really. We've had um, Supreme Blue Rose, Trees, something else. Um, was there something else or was it just those two? It feels like he's been doing a lot. It was um, those two. So Moon, Moon Knight and Trees. And then Moon, there's Moon some, Knight, sorry. There's some others queued up for next year and as well. He also he started blogging in a different way. Um, morning computer is a new thing from him this year, as is his newsletter. I There's really like morning computer. Morning, if you haven't encountered morning computer, go and go and do so. It's these little prose vignettes. It's one a day. It's a thing he's thinking about, and it's that it's a blend of slightly lyrical meditations on where he happens to be, or that LSE future gazing weird synthesis that he does. I just oh god, I just fucking adore him for this. It. There aren't like Gibson does it, but there aren't there aren't that many people who are just this kind of wonderful polymathic, mathic, smooshy, synthetic off the cuff thinker, and sometimes it's bollocks, right? A lot of it can be bollocks, but it's it's just a joy. It's it's like a little sparky, bizarro ideas factory. Yeah, it's that thing that whenever you're getting writing advice, there's the the, the sort of notion of read widely and sort of. Mm think about it and then wait for it to sort of crash together in the subconscious mm. and um, it can seem a little forced sometimes because you essentially the way that he writes notes is quite public and you see him mm. going through the process a lot of the yeah. time forming these connections um, but yeah broad, broadly the same I think um, Global Frequency is fantastic for this yeah. because he's basically taken the idea of Thunderbirds uh, of you know what would happen if basically saving everyone was up to 
a bunch of engineers. What would they create in order to do this? How do you multi-purpose it? It's and there's actually an article, I think it's an article. There's a piece of old school hard sci-fi a bit like that. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a set of it's a collection of shorts about weird problem space engineers, uh, literally problem space and problems in space. Um, but uh, there are there are some wonderful little things like that. Um, so there's a beautiful story in there about them encountering a building on another world, which is made of something incredibly impermeable to damage that they eventually devise a way of drilling through. And when they do, when they open a tiny aperture through it, the thing that was inside just crumbles into dust. Environmental fragility, and obviously it's poignant and a little posed, but yeah, anyway, weird engineering challenge in space. I'll track down what that actually was, and, total, and I'll totally forget to put a link in the show notes. But... Um, so yeah, this, this year has been a bit of a return to Warren, from Warren Ellis. He's, um, he's been off doing prose things before that. And then bang, he came back with Trees, which is Warren Ellis does big, weird, near-future sci-fi. It's high premise, it's very scattered, it's very interesting, it's still running in singles. It, when, when's the trade collection? I can't remember. February, I think, for the first one. Um, and it got me back into buying singles, and I'd hate him for that if it weren't Warren Ellis, and if I didn't think that, you know, he'd fuck me up. Um, he will fuck you up. Also, he's just like he's my fucking favorite. Um, oh gosh, what else? I should I should sit through this because I'm, I'm whiffling on. I'm whiffling on something rotten. Uh, also, Warren Ellis, Moon Knight. I think you're going to talk about that. Yeah, why not? Um, it's it's about Moon Knight. He's a mental. He is a bit. Yeah. Um, Pretty deadly. We we did a whole podcast on Pretty Deadly. Yeah. It's beautifully beautifully coloured. That's been another thing for 2014, right? It's it's kind of been colorist year. I think, um, at least in the press. Yeah, so there's been a lot of a lot of people talking about colorists being underappreciated, and yeah. there's you know your favorite colorist day. Um, I mean, it's and, also been the year Matt Wilson and Jordi Belair did all the work. Well, Jordi Belair did a little bit less this year, um, which I think is why you sort of started to see some other people like mm. Matt Hollingsworth come through. Um, and who's doing witches? I think that's Jock doing it himself. Oh isn't right. It? Oh no, no, it's it's yeah. Matt Hollingsworth again. All right. Because that's gorgeous. We'll double check that. But the certainly the so I think Jock does what you would think of as the inking, which in mm. his case is a lot of sort of very thick digital lines and a lot of half tones. He's um, doing his whatever machine he's running Photoshop shop on must be running hot. Yeah, I really like his stuff, I and mean, he he works fast. Uh, he uh, he did a lot of production design on the Dread movie, and if you see you can see some time lapses of the stuff he does. He can work really fucking fast. He is. Mm. He's a skillful individual. But, um, yeah, so Pretty Deadly is one of those kind of colorist porn books. I, not not like a novelty calendar. That would just be horrible. God, why did I even say that? Well, just colorists with Cintiqs covering the appropriate areas. Stop talking. Well, you can have another one the next year for flatters. <laughs> what would they even cover things with? Cintiqs, but just, not as good because they don't get paid as much. It's just Cintiqs all the way down. It is Cintiqs all the way down. Well, there's stuff below the Cintiqs, but you're not allowed to see it because that's how this that's works. That's kind of the point of the, the yeah. gentle Cintiq titillation. Yes. I fear we have strayed. Yes, we have gone off topic somewhat. Anyway, um, sorry, yes. So Pretty Deadly is is gorgeous for, for colour and it's a fascinating piece of kind of mythopoiesis. Um, it's, it's just... It's just fun, and it's Kelly Sudaconic, like, hey. Yeah, and Emma Rios does the art, and I really love Emma Rios' art. Oh, have you read Bitch Planet? No, it's sitting on my iPad, but unfortunately you're reading off that at the moment, so I can't read it right now. Also, we're in the middle of the podcast. Well, I'm not letting you take a fucking break. No. 
Uh, so the answer is no, I guess, then, um, because determinism. I, I guess people probably should read it. It's getting great press. Yeah, it's something that I really want to read. Mm. I think it's it's hard because you sort of live in an echo chamber that's made up of Kelly Sue and Matt and all yeah. of their friends um, on Twitter. And so great press is essentially a lot of backslapping to an extent. A lot okay, of self, so let me, let me rarify that somewhat. My filter bubble resounds with press. Yes, as it did for Pretty Deadly. Mm. Um, and I propose we now start calling that Big Weird Western in the mm-hmm. same way as Big Weird Sci-Fi. Yeah, because there's um, the thing I didn't make my list, but I do like uh, Copperhead. Yeah, is also is also on there. Um, and the Collector, which I'll mm-hmm. talk about, which is not new, but it's new in English and has one volume. So I'm putting it on the fucking list. Six Gun Gorilla as well, Big Weird Western. Yep, I think that was my pick for last year. Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. Big Weird Western. So, um, other things, um, Black Sad, it's the new Black Sad, it's still Black Sad. Yeah, it's If you like Black Sad, you should buy this Black Sad. It's not one of my favourites. This one's yellow. Yes, it is. The, the main, I'm being terribly flippant, I do think it's beautiful. It's not quite as well written as the last one, it's not quite as interesting. But it's still an astounding piece of artwork, it's still really good in our storytelling. And yeah, this one's all yellows and golds. Yeah. And, and it's, it's creepy. It's very much sort of heading out of comfortable noir territory and into the 60s. Yeah, and there's a degree to which it's kind of, hey, what if the beat poets were furries? They probably were. Yeah. Ginsburg was furry. I don't, I don't think that's how it works. He, was, he had a lot of hair, he had a big beard, I, is what I, I'm saying. I don't think it's... The... I saw the greatest minds of my generation dressed up in my little pony outfits. God, that would be today's... Yeah. Angel-headed hipsters complaining that it's about ethics in games journalism. What else? I'm not even sorry. <laughs> um, I think that's it for me. Uh, oh, Mulp! Mulp! Fucking Mulp! You like to use Loves Mulp. Mulp. Don't look at me like that. Okay. Taking the best years of my life, Marjorie. Um, so Mulp was, was our thought bubble pick. It's from the, uh, the fine, fine folk at Improper Books who were kind enough to talk to us, despite us being these fucking idiots. Um, they didn't know that. They only found that out later. Well, apparently one of them liked the podcast. Thanks. Um, sorry, I guess. Maybe. Maybe sorry. Do you think it should be sorry? Probably. It's probably sorry. Um, yeah, so Mulp is... Mouse Indiana Jones, after all, the humans are dead. That's a slightly glib description of it, but it ought to, it ought to moisten you about the, about the comics and others. It's, uh, it's a pretty book, isn't it? It's lovely. It looks nice. It's got a, good, it's got a really good palette. Um, it's, it's mice solving architectural mysteries. There's a kind of bizarro Sumerian god intervention culture hero, Rosetta Stone. Maybe not Sumerian. But it's got, it's got this thing where the, the mice-like archaeologists, after all, the humans are dead, are in a sort of deception-y conspiracy thing, people race for a treasure, hoo-ha, um, about some kind of Rosetta Stone object that leads a treasure trail, but that's got this sort of culture hero, deific intervention, multiple readings and multiple mythologies vibe to it that I just, I, that's like catnip to me. How have we, as awful as we are, never mentioned the notion of culture heroes up until this point? We have, we just haven't used the phrase. Okay. You've talked about it, it's one of your go-to things for talking about mythology. True. And we're going to do a big in-depth Wiktiv. Um, we are, we are. In a we couple are. of weeks' time, once Christmas is done and all of that business. Hashtag Wiktiv. Yes, yes. So there'll be more then. 
just more banging on about mythology. It's going to be like five or six years ago. Oh yeah, you know. So is that that's everything from your yeah yeah. They, they didn't make the short list. That's no, the it's, list. it's just the other things I love: Malt, Black Sad, T.J. and Amal, Trees, Will of the Wisp, Moon Knight, Pretty Deadly. They've they've all been good. I've gone with a fairly mainstream selection this year. I think. Uh, I don't know. I, maybe maybe people haven't heard of Malt, in which case I think they should have. Um, T.J. and Amal. I don't know how big that is in the UK. I've I don't. I, so that's one of those it. things that I think has a huge audience, but it's almost distinct from general, general what we would think of as comics audience, the shop going well, comics so audience. I heard about it in the same article that I heard about um, Tea House and Prince of Cats, which was basically it was some sort of frivolous. There are com- some gay web comics. Yeah, for you. it was some kind of frivolous queer lifestyle website that ran a, a post on. I think it was something super ridiculous, like the hottest pop culture boys you don't know exist, or it was something stupid like that. It was le- buzzfeeding. It was it was leading with how cute a couple of the characters in Tea House were, and then using that as an on ramp for talking about queer web comics. Um, Tea House is kind of bobbins, but the boys are quite hot. That's not really a recommendation, is it? It's not really, and I don't think casual thoughtless luxury is even on the bingo card. You've just um, you've just you've just uh, told people to basically if they're incredibly superficial to go and read Tea House yeah yeah if you if you want to flick yourself off to, di- off to digital colouring well that's good you've, you've mentioned a bingo card I should have said at the start we are running bullshit bingo mm. uh, on this podcast um, there is a link to bullshit bingo in the show notes you grab yourself a numbered bingo card you uh, put your number on the Google Doc so we know that you have claimed that bingo card and then you yell at us either on the website, in the notes for this podcast, on Twitter, or you can email us. And you yell, house. When you hear the stupid, ridiculous, overused phrases that we're trying to train ourselves out of by costing ourselves money. Um, yes. We will have to give you a comic if we say all of them. Not, not yes. all of you. Fucking hell. But they don't pay us that much. You will, you will win... One or both of our favourite comics. We haven't decided yet, yeah. but whichever we end up picking, you will get those and we will send them to you directly from the Amazon factory. So we will not even have touched them or done anything. So you don't need to worry about any sort of trap that we might be doing to you. I think you're overegging that. I am stating this not so much for our listeners, but for the inquiry. Would you like to know what is on my list? Um, I'm fairly sure it's Beat Rogers to Death with a Chair Leg and then some crabbily scrawled comic titles. It's a different, it's a different list now that you're right to that list. Um, That's why we're in the room with the neat all of these plastic chairs. chairs. Yeah, they're moulded. I'm going to have to beat you to death with the whole one, quite frankly. It's just not ergonomic. It'll, it'll be like a sort of tragic misfire of an Ikea advert. Yes, yes. How, what is the Swedish for putting an alcoholic out of his misery? <laughs> I don't know, but I bet it's got just a fuck ton of umlauts. I really enjoyed this one summer. Good. Um, I, I liked it too. It's a, See, we're, we're reconciling there. Yeah. Can you feel the love in the room? Uh, it's got poking me in the kidneys. <laughs> too much Krampus, too soon. I think you credit me with quite a lot. We're sat quite far away, dude. Nick? 
This is not a good introduction to this one summer, which is no, a sort it's, of it's got quiet, very little to do with family the drama. drama. Um, yes, I really liked it. Um, I, I, this one summer is about a family going to their normal summer retreat, and it's essentially about all of the things that sort of change over this one summer, and it's sort of it's it's sort of broadly about sort of breaching childhood and adulthood and the sort of uncomfortable space between them but it's also around uh, essentially a lot of things that are going unresolved a lot of things that sort of feel like huge crashing deals where not everything really happens and in that way it sort of feels like quite a nice representation of the sort of very dramatic feeling of a lot of things in childhood when mm. not huge amounts is happening and it's also it's about how different generations interact with one another and how they perceive the the sort of the life stages of those other people. Like those people can't possibly have problems because they're sixteen. Mm. Um, those people, you know, they're adults. They're not meant to fight. Um, and some wonderful contrast medium stuff. Um, different stages of growing up uh, laid out against some big stuff. So you've got the. Um, uh, First People's Village, which yes. uh, kind of plays out childhood perceptions, adolescent perceptions, and adult perceptions of some fairly problematic but also very earnest attempts to handle Canada's um, colonial past. Is it, is it, yes, it is colonial. It's just yeah. not. I always get this mixed up in my head. Colonial, I think, British Empire, but actually it's, it's all kind of, yeah. yeah. But it, there's, there's that. Um, and then there's the gendered socialization stuff, um, and then you know there's death. There's, well, sex and death, right? It's it's yeah. It, if they and it's a bloody good job they didn't. But if they let me write the tagline, it would have been sex, death in perfect cadence. And this is why no one lets you write the tagline. I write adverts. Shit. Yeah, you might want to check the website, dude. We're all fired. I also liked Through the Woods. Which I did talk about in which which one is that considerably more detail. It's Emily Carroll. It's a collection. Um, everyone of, loves Emily Carroll. Everyone does love Emily Carroll. It's a collection of her horror comics, mm. all of which are, well, most of which are very cleverly designed for the web. She's one of those people mm. who's web first and does so in quite um, quite a smart way. Um, Ryan Andrews is another artist who's mm. like that, who I would love to have put on the best of list because. Uh, I did buy a collection of his through Kickstarter, but it was essentially a reprint, so can't really do that. But Through the Woods is a is a collection of sort of very uh, folktale-like um, horror comics. And, you know, the woods are mm. always... The woods are the thing that's outside the village in folktales. The woods are the unknown. The woods are always scary. They're also... They're where bad things come from. Yeah, so, but they're also, um, you can get into this whole wonderful sort of postmodern psychosexual thing. I mean, the woods are the unknown, they're the thing outside the firelight, but they're also. I'm trying not to say pubic hair because that's not what I mean, but there is something dark and. The lights went out the moment you said that. That was um, the lights. The, the motion sensors in the office turned off the lights the second I said pubic hair. I thought it was when you said dark, but knock yourself out. Yeah. Um, um, but you know the kind of uh, moist, dank, oppressive, 
kind of that that kind of that the, the sap is rising, organic, musty smells, forbidden summertime. Roger, you have gone off on one. Please fucking stop it. <laughs> but you get it, right? You you get that there's this whole kind of. You realise I could easily transpose you talking about wine and you talk, talking about folklore, and you, you're using essentially the same nouns. Transgressive sexual woodland motherfucker. We're not here to talk about your old band. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Uh, this is this is a thing. I'm explaining thing. this very very badly. This is it's... a thing that's common in folklore. Like the, the woods represent outside of outside of well, the self, and they represent represent both fear or sometimes and they represent malaria. Well, these as fuckers... my old Latin teacher used to say. <laughs> this is presumably why people. This in... is the Hercules thing. In uh, in folklore, just drinking gin and tonic all the fucking time. Probably, but um, <laughs> I think we read very different fairy stories growing up. I mean, a passage to India probably doesn't really count as a fairy. Anyway, um, so no, no. So my my old Latin teacher at school had this theory. I have talked about this before. That the labors of Hercules were about he was about draining swamps to prevent malaria. Yes. And that you can so that a lot of the folklore around certain places um, amounted to ways of codifying ambient danger. Well, this is the theory behind a lot of um, uh, a lot of sort of religi- religiously imposed diet and mm-hmm. behaviours. So a lot of and nipping off the end of your winkle and all of that. Stuff. Yes. So when the sandstorm whips up, you don't get sand caught under your hoo ha. Yeah. Um, which, as we discussed earlier this afternoon, would be a huge problem for Kalel. Yes. Yeah. So, Superman, Superman is thought of as this is really a digression from Emily Carroll. Um, Superman. Oh God, is, I hope so. Superman is frequently referred to as a, as a Jewish superhero because the early publishing industry in New York and Siegel and Schuster are all um, very Jewish, and yeah, he, he represented a sort of immigrant ideal within America. But how do you circumcise him? He's invulnerable. Yeah, you'd need like a power drill. No, that's not gonna. That's not gonna go near him. You can shoot him; it bounces off. Mm. We'll leave that one for people to ponder on, um, because I would like to talk about hip hop family tree now, <laughs> as opposed to Superman's penis. If you don't fucking mind, <laughs> knock yourself out, dude. Uh, hip hop family tree by Ed Piscor is a. Is essentially it's a history which I think is intended to be in five volumes of um, the early days of hip hop, or at least right now it's in the early days. Presumably, it's going to get up to date by the time volume five is out. Um, and it is. Is, that, is this that big thing? Yeah, it's huge, huge. It's sort of oversized printing from mm. Fantagraphics, Graphics, beautifully designed to look like um, sort of nineteen seventies Marvel comics, mm. and. The whole thing is just, it's, it's a beautiful package that actually in, makes me interested in a sort of something that I don't really know about, music I don't really listen to hugely um, through the medium of good comics. I like it. It is good. The first two volumes are out at the moment. I wish I'd stuck with my adolescent dalliance with hip-hop, but I am just painfully white. You are very white. Just So Happens is a lovely book. I heard that. I heard it was a lovely book. It's... Fumio um, Abate, yeah? Yes. Um, who, I would like to state declaratively for the record, is a man. Um, and I couldn't actually find that out in advance of the previous uh, podcast, but uh, Mr. S.J. Harris has confirmed this for us, and I'm very happy for him to have done so. 
Um, we are terrible at doing our research. No, but there was just nothing. There was nothing. There's no author pages or anything. I should probably also apologise for getting the um, the Mindstain people's names wrong as well. You should. Do you want to apologise now? I'm I'm sorry. Do you want to tell them what the name? What, so who we did actually talk to? Um, yes, we talked to uh, who did we talk to? We talked to George Joy, was it? And Rob Burton. Rob Burton. I used to know someone called Rob Burton, but a different Rob Burton. That's a very boring story. Cool story, bro. I'm not going to tell it again. No, no, don't. Um, so it just so happens is um, it's similar to sort of um, Now Brown, which we talked about last year, um, in that it's about someone who's struggling with their identity as a citizen of two countries, originally from Japan and then transplanted to London, and is sort of forced to confront... Um, cultural differences and family history when her father dies. Um, and it's just a quiet exploration of that, beautifully done. Um, it's not as complex or terrifying as now Brown is. Um, You'd have to be going some. Yes, but it is, it is a lovely book and it just scraped by being on my final list. As did The Wicked and the Divine, which yeah. I think we both enjoy. So I, I, I felt bad for not listing it. I was going to try and whittle the list down to five, and then we decided not to care about the limit. Um, but um, I, I also thought we could slip it onto the still good category because it's ongoing. But I, it just it feels like it needs a mention. I know some people that really didn't like it. Um, you didn't like it very much to begin with. I loved the first issue, and then when I picked up the trade, I had a bumpy experience with with it the first time through. How is it you described it? It was... It's a comic book about pop stars and gods and oh, shit. fuck off. I... No, the experience. It was something like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, but go on. Yes, something like that. There's, um... It's, it's, it's more a sort of cycle of, oh, for fuck's sake, oh, but go on, but oh, for fuck's sake. Which comes from the sort of very knowing uh, nature of pretty is, much everything it does. It is extremely knowing. It is incredibly posed. Bits of it are very, very good. Bits of it are slightly weak. It's consistently beautiful because of McKelvey. Yeah. And Wilson. And who else is on that team? There's someone else on the cover. I can't remember the name. Matt Hollingsworth. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, and it's gorgeous. The character designs are good. Yes. I, I, like, I like Woden as Daft Punk. Yes, that's fantastic. The little light-up LED mm-hmm. wings on his helmet. Um, not wild about the Morrigan designs, but that's about it. Um, but you don't really like goth. I imagine that if you're a goth cosplayer, those things I are totally fucking like catnip. I goth. I went through a little phase. I, what was his name? <laughs> we'll just say Drambui and move on. Um, I don't want to dwell on it, because we're going into yeah. big detail next time around. But it, it is good. It is worth reading. Um, yeah. Moon Knight. I think it's the only... Uh, no, there is one other superhero-y thing on it's my list. It's weird, it's so weird. The, the Dream Issue. The Dream Issue is fantastic. So uh, Moon Knight is just a series of... Well, the six issues that Warren Ellis and Declan Shalvey did mm. are just one-off issues. Wow, I mentioned an Irish guy's name and I go straight into rhotic R sounds. Um, they're all different. Some of them are sort of fairly straightforward action. Some of them are ghost stories. One is a huge hallucinatory dreamscape inside a sort of mushroom-induced psychedelic state. Did I ever tell you about the William Lavov department store study? 
I would have stabbed you if you had, so no, no, go on. It's about rotating arse, we'll talk about it later. I look forward to it. Um, and each issue just does something else. I mean, one of them is pretty much a sort of straight riff on the raid, um, with him pro- progressively climbing up uh, a building, but it's all just brilliantly done. And it's more Alice, so it's a violent oddball fucks you up. Yeah. Um, and... Because that is... Sort of cycles cycle through various aspects. Well, so it's... it's it cycles through a lot of his tropes, right? It, it cycles through a lot of the stuff that Ellis does. Yeah. Um, it cycles through the various aspects of the character. So the history of the character, mm. he's always had multiple personalities. Mm. Um, and it's always been sort of presented as him having a dissociative personality disorder. This is a lot more synthesized. Yeah. But he's formally... He doesn't... He doesn't refract through them. He brings different aspects to the party semi-selectively. It's, it's interesting. Yes. He seems to have sort of had some therapy and does do some different things. So there's a, he cycles through his sort of Mr. Knight character, who is the the sort of strange detective in the white suit. He's got a superhero aspect. He's got an ultra violent aspect, um, and uh, and a couple of others. And oh god, those panels with the um, avatar of is it Conchu? Yeah, with the weird bird skull and the, oh, it's just a beautifully drawn thing. So Moon Knight, it's. Big silly fun. I really hope that they put out a giant omnibus edition of that run, although they seem to want about 18 issues before doing that. It would go nicely in one of those outsized things that Marvel stopped yeah, doing. Yeah, that's what I mean. They haven't stopped. Really? Where the fuck are they? Young Avengers came out last week. Oh, for cock's sake. Well, now you can rebuy it in a form you like. Well, that's my money turning into less money for very little good reason, because I'm weak. You can always sell the old ones on eBay. I can. Anyway, yes, the Young Avengers came out last week, and hopefully they will do the remainder of the Fraction and Aha Hawkeye mm. ones in a giant one. Which I believe is on your still good list. It's on the still good list. Hawkeye, still good. Um, they did six, five, six issues where uh, Kate Hawkeye, girl Hawkeye... Lady Hawkeye. Yeah, Lady Hawkeye, uh, went to L.A., met... Let's face it, it's fucking Elliot Gould. She hung around with Elliot Gould. Uh, he got shot, turned out to be a life model decoy, brought back by uh, her nemesis, reintroduced into her life. At some point, she kind of reconciled the Beach Boys. It was a bit odd. But in, in the same way that they sort of were doing a lot of 70s New York with um, mm. the early issues of Hawkeye, they did a lot of 60s and 70s L.A., with the Kate issues, and it was great. And that was Annie Wu did those. They looked gorgeous. So what else have I read? Moonhead and the Music Machine? Is that the thing you were talking about? Yeah, you do get how this works, right? <laughs> this, this is the 30th of these. You do understand what we're doing. <laughs> I, I just thought this was a series of increasingly demeaning job interviews. <laughs> yeah. Like at the end of this, do I have to work for Google? No, it's not even that good. You don't make any money at all. Oh, um, we really don't. No, what, that, like that's a fiver in advertising revenue. That's why we have jobs. Oh yeah, I kind of like mine. Yeah, yeah. Moonhead and the Music Machine is a, a coming of age story uh, about someone who just needs to learn self belief, but also has a moon for a head. Like, the actual moon is his head, and it 
goes off and floats around sometimes. Is it actually the moon? It's actually the moon. Control like decides it is the moon. Well, it's it's a moon, certainly. It's a cosmic entity, and it floats off by itself every now and then, flies around the cosmos. Though that might be a metaphor for absent-mindedness. It is. Oh but also his head is actually the fucking moon. Mm. Um, and it's just about sort of embracing weirdness and um, self-belief. And it's beautifully drawn by Andrew Ray, and it's... Not my favourite book of the year, otherwise it wouldn't be on this list, but it is interesting and it sort of marks him as someone I will definitely be following. Hmm. I think that was one of the ones that you described to me and then I hated the sound of it and then I flipped through it and then I wanted to read it. Yeah, the art's lovely. Um, it's not. It's it's reasonably lightweight, I, I would say, but then it's also something You've that would... You've seen what I've been reading. I don't very much, it's, it's something that would very much work for kids as well as people who like weird psychedelic stuff. Well, actually, no, that's lightweight. No, I've been reading the um, Berlin... Things, um, City of Stones, and there are a couple more, and those are lovely. Well done. I don't know what they are. Do tell. Um, I can't remember the author, I can't remember any of the details because I didn't prepare them for the podcast, but it's a bit like the issue with Berlin novels, but with a bit more historical observation and some very lovely clipped line work. Are they as generally gay as the Isherwood novels? No, not no. really. Not, okay. really, not really at all. So Berlin from the same period, but yeah. not sort of living in the same it, it's, space. It's the rise, it's the um, twilight of the Weimar Republic um, and all the shit that was horrible about Berlin. And it's counterculture and it's beaten ex well, not, you know what I mean. So, um, yeah. But it, it's, it's not predominantly queer in the same way as the Isherwood vision of that world. Okay. So I also read uh, The Collector, which... What is that? Um, it's a collection of Sergio Toppi comics from the 80s. Um, Sergio Toppi being, being one of the great um, draftsmen of sort of European comics. He's an Italian artist. Oh, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. He's done some beautiful stuff. His um, Arabian Nights uh, work um, was collected as Shahraz Day last year. And immediately went yes, out of print and, and cost a fortune. He's done some beautiful illustrated Poe stuff. He's got very, um, he's, he's got very, very sort of almost, it's, it's a bit like, and if you'll forgive me, uh, it's a bit like Klimt in the way that it combines sort of um, patterns and chaos. It's sort of, you see things emerge from what... But without everything looking like a bullshit waterfall. Yeah, and without, without a bunch of eyes and things. But mm. he uses a lot of sort of very, very chaotic stuff that sort of forms a whole very, very well. Um, if you know Klimt at all, that will mm. kind of make it fairly clear. There's a bunch of... Especially the, the, surrounded by things. the less chocolate box, box Klimt. The, yeah. um, the kind of... I don't know if it's the earlier or the later stuff, but where you can see it's the influence of the, the gift card me a bit more traditional composition. So that, that's sort of how he does backgrounds, and he does a lot of big sweeping backgrounds because he draws everything like it's a Sergio Leone film, mm. um, no matter where it's set. Um, and then he does incredibly formal figure work, um, just absolutely wonderful stuff, and it sort of, uh, some of it ranges from almost photoreal to gently cartoony, but essentially it's a sort of... Um, it sort of reads like a post-colonial western. You have this character, the collector, who basically turns up in various places where conflict is happening, uh, trying to retrieve a particular artifact that has caught his imagination. Um, right. Things that have great history about them. So there's a there's a nod to the audience there. 
I guess. To an extent, yeah. He. Um, I mean, there are certain views on some of that stuff that you can see as the reading experience being inherently... Well, you know where I'm going with that. Yeah. We're extracting this little note from the thing. Um, so he essentially turns up and then, then yeah, it becomes a, almost infallibly, it starts off as an adventure story and ends up being this sort of um, post-colonial western where he turns up and doesn't quite do the white saviour thing, but generally sides with the, the, the people who are being invaded for very good reasons, um, most, mostly moral. So essentially he wanders out of the desert like Clint Eastwood does something hugely moral and then fucks off again. But he's how does nicked it, something. How does it manage not being the white savior narrative? Um, because usually, uh, so there's one, there's one, there's one early story where it kind of fails horribly. Hmm. Um, in that he uh, drugs a Native American chief and takes his place in the battlefield. Well, it's not quite as bad as Avatar, but that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And then after that, it sort of avoids that fairly uh, fairly comprehensively. Um, mostly by... He, he is an ally rather than a saviour. It's, right. it's... In how it's presented, I think it's... It, it comes close, close to it every now and then, but I think it's, it's certainly not... You know, it's not Jack London stuff where... Mm. You know, the white man turns up and saves everything. He he will turn up and he will get involved, but normally he's sort of an audience, um, an audience stand-in for you know why. Basically, all colonial powers of this age were complete dickheads. So there's um, fight. He's fighting against the Italians, the English, uh, the um, settled Americans at that point, and uh, and various others. And then at some point, partway through, acquires a more traditional. Uh, nemesis, who is the sort of um, this uh, sort of duchess character, um, who is an evil genius, and it's kind of like if Bond fucked Blofeld, essentially. There's even I've a vol- there's even website. a volcano base, um, but it's great. It's it's worth it mostly for the artwork. Um, it for something that came out in 1984 originally. It's trying very very hard to do interesting things with um, progressive politics around sort of general colonial native uh, narratives. Yeah, because this stuff was, was far from the mainstream discourse at that point. I mean, there, is, there is a pretty broad awareness of things like the problem of the, the white saviour motif, um, of structural racism and of colonial narratives and undeconstructed colonial narratives in a lot of literature that there's a broad awareness of that at the moment and that kind of was in the 80s but I don't think it had percolated out into the mass consciousness quite so well I think that's fair it's it, academia had discovered it again it's, it's it's the artwork that's the main draw it is it is genuinely genuinely beautiful it's really really well uh, reproduced in giant size hardback mm-hmm. from Arkea and uh, it's definitely worth picking up mm-hmm. as is Shoplifter uh, by Michael Cho. Have you mentioned that before? I don't think you have. Or if you have, I wasn't listening. I did. I haven't mentioned The Collector before. I mentioned Shoplifter. Well, I'm a terrible person. Yes. Yes, you are. Um, Talked about it briefly. It's about an ad executive who wants more out of life. Well, Um, gosh. Yeah, I know that's been done before. And to be fair, it doesn't necessarily step outside of those um, constraints particularly, but it is beautifully, beautifully Mm. drawn. And it is a a sort of Darwin Cookie, pastel-y sort of Mm. thing. Um, 
which I uh, went into fairly fairly big detail on the other podcast, so I won't um, go into detail here. But it's very oh, very fuck, nice. Oh yes, it's that thing. Yes, it's the one I really liked. Apart from the uh, the lettering drove me nuts. Um, it has not been a good. I was going to say good year, but it's not been a good couple of years for typography. It's it's just. Some people get it right. I think in comics, particularly, it becomes invisible the moment it's done well. Well, that's kind of that's part of what it's for, unless you're doing logotype or big print layout. Yeah, or I mean, some people do interesting things with it in fairly mainstream stuff. One final thing mm-hmm. before we do the big countdown that everyone's been waiting for. Oh, they haven't really. They've been like half-heartedly listening to this in the car or something. Bemused, mostly a little bemused. bit worried. Silver Surfer. Um, he's silver and he surfs. Yes, yes, he does. Um, by Dan Slott, Mike Alred, Laura Alred. Basically Doctor Who in a tinfoil gimp suit. Uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely had some Doctor Who elements added to it. I made a crack about that on Twitter, which is how I learned that Dan Slott searches for his own name. Because I said, does anyone else see a little bit of Doctor Who in Dan Slott's uh, Silver Surfer? And he sent me a picture of himself operating the TARDIS. So that's good Twitter. Yeah, that's that's full service there from Mr. Slot. That was good, but I just really really enjoy it. It's um kind of what Doctor Who should be in that it's doing big interesting things. Obviously it doesn't have the budget constraints, but mm. it's doing that sort of um half sci-fi, half fairy tale stuff yeah. um with an interesting cast and occasionally linking it back to the Marvel universe. So there's one there's one issue which is um uh, he, he and the other characters have to do something in a dream state, mm. which is very, very Doctor Who. Yeah. But the entire thing's done in the Marvel Universe, so Doctor Strange and the Hulk are there, and um, the uh, main character is uh, Nightmare, one of the sort of primal forces of the Marvel Universe, mm. and he just slinks off at the end saying, you know, celestial alignments and dream plans are just not a very good idea, are they? And he just fucks off down the road. And it's just really... It's th- that, that sort of brilliant balance between... Uh, Marvel Universe and a sort of fairly clean take on it, which mm. is exactly what he did with um, She-Hulk as well. Yeah. Which is one of the things that I did enjoy really that. sold me on the wider Marvel Universe back when I was starting to really read comics again after my university-imposed poverty. Um, During our retail career-imposed poverty. Yeah, well, you know, then we had a lot of access to comics that we couldn't afford. And we oh, could just yeah. read them anyway. That was nice. Um, but yeah, Silver Surfer, very much loved it. Can't quite say it's one of my favourites of the year, but I do want to say, read it, it's fun. It is fun, it's definitely fun. And it's got a giant terrifying monkey. That monkey! So, let's let's get down to brass fucking tacks. Yeah. My favourite comics of the 2014. The three. So tell us in a little bit of detail. Okay, but so three favorites. Do you want me to run them in reverse order, or they or just? I didn't realize you had an order. I, I didn't realize really... you could count, to be honest. <laughs> I've got a lookup sheet. Just imagine it's the number written out next to just a pile of dildos that's gradually, <laughs> <laughs> gradually getting bigger and bigger. One, two, three dildos. <laughs> Occasionally, you have to dip into a horribly undulating sports bag just to check. <laughs> It's a wonder we're not on Radio 4, you can, isn't it? You can, you can do complex maths with sufficiently loose string of anal beads. Like a horrible arsehole abacus. Yes, which, which I believe is your second album. We've transgressed. <laughs> I feel we may have strayed. 
<laughs> Seriously, did we just go to the butthole abacus place? So, your third favourite comic. I don't have them in any order. I have a favourite of the three. But, um, okay, well let's just talk about all of them. Well, let's start with Trillium. Trillium. Big weird sci-fi. Big weird sci-fi for the win. Were there to be a win, it would be in favour of it. Um, so Trillium is Jeff Lemire straying a little bit outside... Well, no, not massively outside his idiom. He's done weird shit before. I don't think he's got an idiom, particularly. He seems to vary massively what, what he does. Moreau's men in their late 20s to early 30s are, are a feature. Well, true, but then Essex County runs the gamut from young men to slightly older men. Hmm. Underwater welder, yeah, it's pretty much that. Uh, sweet Tooth, much younger people and much older people at the same time. Yeah. So if you're taking an average... Mm. Beautiful, beautiful book. He, I, I love, I love the artwork. Very trippy at the end, a bit two thousand and one. Um, a little. Uh, far future story. Humanity's on the run from a sentient virus called the Call that's hunting it. That that part makes no sense. It didn't have to be a virus. Who knows? It, it, whatever. There's a nebulous threat. We're down to not many humans, and it keeps getting fewer and fewer throughout the comic, which creates a, to be honest, semi-unnecessary sense of pressure. And you have these two characters, uh, Mika and Pike, I think it's Pike. Pike is his surname, I can't remember his first name. Um, one is a um, early 20th century soldier, a little bit of PTSD from World War II. Nika is a far future botanist or biologist of some kind, um, trying to, uh, they, they believe that the flower they found on this particular planet might hold the key to curing the, um, the infection. Um, find an indigenous species there, enter a temple, and end up temporarily schmooshed. And there's this kind of flipping thing going on where you rotate the comic halfway through and their lives intertwine, and one of, in one of the midsections they both end up in transposed fantasy versions of the universe where different things have happened, or with each other's memories. And It's just it's this gorgeously interlaced thing. A lot of the reviews and a lot of the commentary about it describe it rather glibly as... Um, a sci-fi love story and it is in that they end up together and that their attempt to kind of reach out to each other becomes a unifying narrative strand but I don't know I, I just don't think it's about that I, it's, it's, it, so much of it is about loss and so much of it is about longing I mean arguably love is about that to a certain extent if you read a, a certain amount of poetry but um, it's, it's not there's this thing, this aching imperfect cadence to it, this thing about personal incompleteness and the idea of somewhat intangible, somewhat unrealizable connections, but also of being out of place, out of your time, out of your world, and the fact that finding this person doesn't entirely substitute for that, but it does take the edge off. And everyone, everyone's missing something, everyone's lost something. So Nika has, has, has lost her mother to an asteroid storm, functionally. Pike lost most of his friends in the war, and then in the alternate versions of the world they've lost their previous identities, they've lost their sense of self. It's, there's, there's this tremendous, wonderful strain running through it about personal incompleteness. Um, and then it goes bug fuck crazy at the end in a really, really visually, visually gorgeous way. Sorry, I've just talked a whole bunch of... 2001. Yeah, so. I've just talked a whole bunch of lyrical half-thought nonsense about it because I'm quite tired. But it's a very immersive book. It's a very... It invites you into it in a way. It's quite sensorily immersive and quite emotionally so as well. 
even when it's confusing and bits of it aren't. Remember I bitched about mind management and the thing where you had to turn it on the, on its side to read the coder in the side things. Yeah, that was just a genuinely terrible user experience in as much as that's applicable to a narrative which is not very much except in this way. Yes. So, the turn the page around to get the flipped around story thing is just bullshit. It's kind of funny the first time. I get it. The only thing that for me that works about it is that you know the other story is there all the time. Now, I can't think of a less annoying way to deliver that, so fair play. But the idea that you're reading it and then the transposed story on the bottom half of the page is there but inaccessible really un- underscores that kind of longing and disintermediation uh, thing. I'm enjoying how furious you are at one of your favourite books of the year. I think I sounded that angry. But um, maybe, maybe, maybe. But uh, it, it's, it's just... I, th- I think I'm annoyed because I don't... I, it's, it makes it irritating to consume, but it genuinely achieves something useful, and I can't think of a better way that could have approached it. No form of narrative per, is perfect. We've just adapted yeah. to the peculiarities of each medium. And this is formal play, and I've got a lot of time. For, I mean, as a modernist, I've got a lot of time for, for, for formal play. Um, you, you don't enjoy the mise-en-page. Oh, sorry, no, that, just, that sounded like a public health announcement. As a modernist, I've got a lot of time for formal play, but there's nothing formal play about diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the diabetes. I'm so getting that. No, um, so as with... So you, you know that the sort of mise-en-page play with, with a lot of modernist poetry? No. I'll be honest, I don't. Words arranged on the page to create certain impressions and e Cummings, yeah, that kind of thing. Other bits and pieces. Um, it arguably starts with Hopkins, or maybe a bit earlier. If anyone had heard of Merrilies, that's kind of one of the great touchstones. Um, it's in the wasteland. It's all over the place. It's in pound, um, and sometimes it really adds something, and sometimes it kind of obfuscates, and sometimes when it obfuscates, it's still worth it. And the formal play of Trillium, I think, falls into that category. It is slightly irritating, but it is probably worth it. Right. Um, Danielewski's House of Leaves, I think, by all accounts, is similar. Although maybe a bit wanky and indulgent. What's next? Um, recriminations, a sour middle age, and a gentle slide into penniless death. But pretend for a moment that you've got two more comics to talk about. Oh, right, sorry, yes. Um, Let's delay your grim Christmas future for a moment longer. (laughs) Oh, if only we might. Let's distract you by asking you to tell us about Pregnant Butch. Yes, Pregnant Butch. Um, Again, another one I've talked about, this this being the downside of the format. Pregnant Butch is one of my great surprises of the year. It's the comic, I think, that taught me the most. Um, I imagine it's certainly outside of... Um, as a, sort of, as a, uh, a non-fiction comic, it's probably outside of your area of experience more than most. Yeah. This year I've seen a slight decline in the sheer amount of non-fiction comics. They've sort of felt, for the last couple of years certainly, to be almost overwhelming in number. In the media froth, certainly. So I wonder if there's a life cycle thing going on there. So the whole com- Zock, Kapow, Foof comics aren't for kids anymore, all of that shite. Um, 
comics have been getting regular coverage in The Guardian and other newspapers, but quite a bit in The Guardian for quite a, for a few years now, three or four. Yeah. And it was always going to start with the worthy biography, someone's sour memoir of losing an aunt or a child or something, or fucking Persepolis, which is great, but has just become such a critical cliche to froth over. They had a... Um a uh, brand new Chris Ware comic running for the last few months mm. which is fairly impressive yeah. for a mainstream newspaper and now it's all settled down a bit and we don't have to pretend that terribly depressing memoir or very very interesting culturally enlightening, enlightening memoir is the only valid comics um, we get to write about fiction now which is lovely mm. it feels like there's a little bit less being published as well uh, possibly, um, possibly. Maybe we, but maybe we just haven't read it. I sound terribly down on memoir. I don't regard it as invalid or no, necessarily no, hard work, although, honestly, I am more interested in fiction. It's just something that I noticed as um, the last couple of years we've, we've sort of talked a lot more about, about memoirs. This year there seem to have been fewer published. Mm. No, Pregnant Butch, is, the subtitle is, tells you a lot about it. Pregnant Butch, Nine Long Months Spent in Drag. And it's a dissection of types of femininity and masculinity um, through the lens of butch lesbian pregnancy in New York, just to make it a bit more chaotic and weird. Uh, it's written by A.K. Summers. It's taken, it took a long time to put together, and the collection came out this year. Again, we talked about it on the podcast. I reviewed it on the site, and it just really excited me. It just, it was, I want to say a page turner because it wasn't quite, but it kept me very, very engaged. The, um, it's got that visual style that's very underground memoir comics. It, you know how sort of post-punk um, zini yeah. style, black and white. Thick how everything looks a little bit like Crumb. Uh, I mean, I this doesn't have huge that fetish thighs, and um, that's an unfair analogy. It, it really is. Uh, it's it's really fucking good. Um, there are some wonderful bits of page composition as well. Some of this page layout uh, has some of that information design influence, the kind of flow of ideas and spotlighting of concepts. So um, Peak Summer's character, which is, is basically her but intermediated slightly through a persona, um, tells the story of her pregnancy with these occasional breakout pages which are almost like... I don't want to say infographics because... They're fucking not. But the thing that is doing the rounds at the moment that is most design-wise similar to the mid-infographics um, of kind of her thought processes or what's going on in the world. So you've got some narrative, 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 bang, interesting spread, narrative, narrative, narrative. Uh, it, it, it actually flows really well. Um, Stuck River Baby does this even better, but can't go on my list because it was published years ago and even the reprint was last year. So... Um, no, it's, it's a fascinating book about, about identity, particularly about performed identity and um, interactions with other identities. So female masculinity is something I know very little about and that it interrogates in quite a lot of detail. What does it mean to be butch? What is butch? How does butch interact with pregnancy? How does the experience of pregnancy interact with the expectations of the world? It's, it's effectively, what, 200 and something pages of identity under siege. Uh, and it's great. It's 
funny as well. It's just got a lot going on in it. It'll teach you stuff. It'll make you laugh. I fucking love Pregnant Butch. It's... I'm, I'm struggling to be very coherent or very eloquent about it, but um, I don't know, go read the review. No, I think it's it's difficult when you're you're sort of being you're talking about something on the spot when something is that complex in someone's uh, sort of dissection of their own identity and you know a very carefully crafted identity, which is then sort of taken apart mm. by essentially sort of the reality of. of biology and their own body and how that reacts but that is obviously a big and complex thing and to reduce that to a pithy soundbite is not easy and then some of it nips around and becomes about biography as well it it keeps you on your toes Um, so there's there's a playfulness to it with the structure it refuses to let itself sanitize itself into a narrative structure Um, there are there are coy moments and bits about biography and nods to the fact that narration is not necessarily Reliable. So you have one more book to cover. Yes, yes, I do have one more. Um, on account of three being the number, and us having established earlier that three is the number to which I will count. So the ne- the last one, and anyone who's heard me rave about this, um, this this will be no surprise. Maybe this just reflects my reading. Maybe it reflects my personal preferences. But I think this is a book that has had a lot of praise, but probably not as much as it deserves this year. Which is um, this one summer by Gillian and Mirko Tamaki. Uh, I've talked about it a lot. It just it just kind of hit me in... It hit me in the feels. Right up the feels, Mr. Connery. Which suggests that at one point you were a child rather than sort of flopping damply out of a gigantic tube full of amniotic fluid and dark science. Well, I assume I must have been. I actually... I, blanked out most of the memory of much of my childhood because it was so fucking miserable. Uh, not in a legitimate kind of abuse sort of a way, just in a sort of... Well, you don't know that. You blocked it out. Well, let's hope not. I think mostly I was just a sullen wee fucker and none of it was very interesting. I like um, to think they dressed you as a tiny Morris dancer the whole time and that's why you blocked it out. God, it could be. That like is every kind of every time I... you grew out of your old Morris dancing costumes... <laughs> They went, we've got you some new clothes, Roger, and every time that flutter of hope, and then it was another Morris dancer's outfit. I mean, you could, you, you'd have been able to hear the bells, so it was really a false hope, but... Mm. That is the kind of thing my dad would have found funny. I find it really funny. <laughs> this is why I don't have children. This is why, why no one, no one will sleep with me, so... <laughs> it's because, I, you know, I explain this up front, and then... <laughs> You show them the little diagram. Yeah. The flick book you made about Morris Boy. Yeah, I've got some fabrics watches, and then uh, it's kind of a no-go. So anyway, this one summer. Um, so this one summer is... It's just lovely, except it's not in places. It's... It's... The stuff you said before about negotiating childhood experience, um, about the things that are painful and things that are sad and the things that are unfinished, it's very good at that at the same time as having this wonderful, slightly warm ear for childhood voice. Um, There's this this concept um, that runs through it sort of about knowledge privilege, which is something I find quite interesting in fiction. 
um, particularly if you rotate through characters. So um, the famous um, the, the the brown stocking scene in To the Lighthouse, or in fact quite a lot of To the Lighthouse, but where you have um, the whole who is speaking here problem as the um, the narrative rotates through the consciousnesses of the various characters, and it's not always entirely clear who's talking. Um, it's also not necessarily entirely clear who's thinking. So you can you can partially infer it from what knowledge they do or don't have and what knowledge they do or don't have above each other. And that creates this interesting tension. Um, this is quite a common thing in Wolf, actually. You get it in the waves, obviously, which is entirely about this, and you get it in between the acts, and you sort of get it in the years. But this idea of being able to differentiate between blurry consciousnesses but also playing with the difference between a narrative voice and a character voice by accentuating or dicking about with the privilege of in-context knowledge that you do or don't have? Am I making any sense? Broadly. I, so, I, sort of, I, I guess I was kind of more interested in how they handled the dynamic between the two main girls um, and how they, between them, are not in a sort of sense of one-upmanship but are keen not to be less knowledgeable than the mm. other. Which is, it's part of it being pitch perfect about what it's like to be a child. Parents talking about you while you're still in the room, wanting to be not one-upman but not one-downman yeah. with your, your best friend. The tiny injustices seem like the world. All, all of those things. It's just... Whenever I talk about it, I say that um, the Tamakis are an insanely good at childhood and adolescent voice, and that is the kicker for this. They, I, I've rarely seen anything that was as... And Skim, their, their previous book, is, is, Which is, I haven't, is uh, brilliant. Which I haven't read. Um, but they're... The interaction of these people, the um, you, you've got Rose and Wendy, you've got the teenagers, and you've got Rose and Wendy's parents, on this this kind of sliding scale of expressiveness, of emotional fluency, of, of adulthood, but as this wonderful interactive uh, uh, contrast medium, and they all know different things about the world, and it's portrayed in different ways. Um, Rose and Windy are tremendously volatile. The teenagers are learning their reticence. Um, the adults are trying to break through their reticence. Rose and Windy are champing against learned gendered socialization. The teenagers are to suffer an, to suffering. To yeah, you have the uh, the slut conversation. Mm. You know where you know that's not a good thing to say. You shouldn't say that because mm. that's that's a bad thing to say about some girls. Yeah. And then it's it's one of those points at which. There's a moment of uh, a moment of reflection about one person knowing something that another yes. doesn't. How they take that, how they take that on. Do they reject that information? Do they quietly accept that that was something that they didn't know? Do they mm. treat it as? And it's aching. Rosa's face. Rosa's yeah. reaction. That they, and it, Rose is slightly older than Wendy, and Rose is is the keeper of the sacred sexual knowledge, but not like as a reader. You have this. I think it assumes an adult or at least older teen reader. You, un you understand that they, they know nothing, they've mm. got pieced together rumour yeah. and... And that, that's yes. part of the tongue-in-cheek tongue-in-cheek humour, and as is part of understanding that the teenagers don't know much better either. Um, again, the knowledge privilege thing. They're, they're and the of, adults don't. Yeah. The, the adults have no good idea, they're not They have all the sexual knowledge and none of the emotional fluency. Yeah. And, which you as a reader like to imagine that you do, and of course you fucking don't because we're all human, but you know, yeah. ironic advantage. Um, yeah, it sort of it sort of takes a sort of 
abstract slices at different points mm. in life, um, which but, doesn't really do well for the older folks because grandma's just an alcoholic. Mm. Which they are desperately trying not to notice. And so the coy version of that is that she's this kind of plain speaking funny old lady, but oh, she's a booze hound. And yeah, the evasions of that are delightful. Well, they're not, they're horrible, but it's, it's very well done. Um, but now, you, you, so you, you get this thing where, uh, this, this is this running thing, where Wendy will say something that annoys Rose or will go kind of, will transgress slightly the mores of their social interaction. And when she notes that she's transgressed, she'll go, haha, joking. As, as a kind of that yeah, sort of childlike write-off, got an ironic reflex, but yeah. she doesn't understand fully herself. And then when Rose gets called on the slut conversation, her only recourse is joking. Yes, and it's this beautiful reflection because it totally reverses and shows how fragile these power structures are. Uh, Rose's keeping of the sacred sexual knowledge, which is, it's not even that strong, but it's one of the structural things in their in their relationship has led her into a certain set of internalized pieces of internalized misogyny, which she then trots out in front of Rose. She's using the word slut almost as a kind of power totem. It's kind of, all the girls here are sluts. I know what sluts mean. I am mm. emergent teen sexuality. And Wendy, who is much more clued into this stuff, although partly, it, to some extent, in a she's heard the words and doesn't necessarily know what they mean way, but her, she, her mum's a fading hippie. She's for a kid her age got a really switched on sociosexual consciousness um, replies with that's pretty fucking sexist uh, and then gives a really good account of why it's sexist in a way that Rose could never explain the sexual stuff and she's just put in her place in this wonderful reversal of that friendship dynamic and that happens all the time I don't know maybe I just had a slightly more prosaic childhood but that kind of interaction of the back and forth and the the play of the real and the unreal knowledge and the knowledge privileges. It, it's very real, it's very visceral, it kind of hits you. And the book is just full of this stuff and the teenagers yeah. do it and the adults do it. This is one of the things that it does brilliantly in that it has a lot of these, um, a lot of these sort of uh, intra and intra-dimensional, inter and intra-dimensional, uh, generational moments. Mm. Um, definitely, definitely not it, dimensional. The, the Watchman Squid does not make an appearance. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens in the water. You don't fucking know that. Mm. Um, all of these things happen, and it's it covers all of these sort of tiny, dramatical moments that could happen at these different points in a life, without ever sort of going for any huge, revelatory. You know, the, the, there's no huge payoff to any of this. Yeah. Things are gently, subtly changing, despite the fact that at every moment in the book there are these little tiny power struggles. Mm. And there is little, not even so little, these resolutions, but it refuses to be tidy. And people make significant gestures that do and don't work. And I want to call it the anti-Dawson's Creek. You have. Um, that kind of teen drama that, that feels terribly pat and where kids make gestures more eloquent than they ever could that work because it's derivative TV. And that constantly, stubbornly refuses to happen at the same time as you get some have your cake and eat it because you get to watch people try and make these gestures. 
But it's drama, right? Things have to happen. Mm. Things have to change. You just don't have to necessarily tie them up neatly. Yeah. It's it's just it's just lovely and beautiful and painful and rich and there's a lot going on and the the art is good. It, it's it's not it the finest art of the year, but it does what it does very very well. And it does huge sweeping changes very nicely as well. And it can go from genuinely quite cartoony stuff into almost abstract stuff as it goes yes. out of the environment. The blue and white is great. The it big, is. The, the big heavily inked page spreads, and the coda—well, not coda, but the ending, the, the massive boobs thing, and the tick of the clock in the empty room. Mm. It's. Kind of funny and sweet and yeah. desperately sad at the same time. And I honestly don't think that my the to the lighthouse touchstone is just because I'm obsessed with Virginia Woolf. I think there is actually a. I, th- I think if you've read both, you'll see what I'm where I'm coming from with that. There could well be aching absence, strange spaces. What happens when we're not in the room? Those pieces that are occasionally. The, the, the missing interludes from our lives and the things about growing up and changing and the way we interrelate and we can't. Well. Sorry. Would you like to know what I've been reading? What my favourites were? I would. I would have happily introduced you. You, you know, I could, I'd have asked. It's not like I don't care. Go on and ask. Mr. Conroy. Mm-hmm. What are your favourites? Why, I've got three. Three. In a almost deliberately symmetrical fashion. That's that's more than two, but less than four? Reach into your sports bag and find out. Rabbit. Rude boy. Butt plug. Three. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason you didn't last long on Sesame Street, isn't there? One of my favourites this year uh, was Beautiful Darkness. Is that Critter's Corpse? Yes, so it starts with essentially small sort of human figures and various sort of fairy tale characters sitting, having tea and being polite and living in a very sort of forced society. And almost immediately this starts to break down and they all flee from this crumbling room that they're in, run outside. What you um, then learn is that they were living inside the corpse of a murdered child who is just lying in the grass decomposing. Um, and and, And this leads into essentially this very genteel society which would seem to be basically composed of, of a sort of seven or eight year olds not notion of how the world works. There mm. are princes and princesses and page boys and people like that. Mm. Very, very rapidly going to a Lord of the Flies sort of place. So you have the incredibly naive characters being picked off because they are they are tiny, they are bug sized. They um they are in the real world. And you essentially have this enormous, what starts out as a sort of battle for survival and obviously fragments into various power struggles as various aspects of this this child's personality sort of come to the fore or uh, or, or, or don't. And, and 
these creatures, people, things, thoughts all end up looking for shelter in the sort of woods and grass surrounding um, surrounding uh, this girl's body and sort of a yet more grim Joe the Barbarian. Yeah, perhaps it's it, it's never explicit that they are you know aspects of her, although they are living in her head and come streaming out of her head at the beginning. Um, but there's no sort of connection between her and them. They don't mm. know what this body is. Mm. They they have no recollection. Um, and one of them even ends up sort of living in the cabin of the man who quite clearly murdered her. And it is horrible and fascinating and just beautifully drawn. So it's um, it's by, I've got no idea how to pronounce this, but um, Kerasuet, uh, the artist, the husband and wife artist team who did uh, Miss Please Don't Touch Me. Oh! Um, God, I love that book. Beautiful light watercolor thing. It sort of almost looks like Moomins in mm. places. It's got, <laughs> it's got that as a definite touchstone. Moomins freak me the fuck out. They're not real. You know that, right? They better not be. They've got an island. Of course, they're real. It's like Jurassic Park for those fuckers. Clever girls. Ah. I really don't like Moomins. <laughs> This is not knowledge that you should uh, be putting out into the world. They're creepy. Look at their fucking eyes. Cold, dead eyes of a killer. Yeah, but those sanguine grins, they look at you with those eyes like they're going to harvest your organs, but they're whimsical about it. I must have been reading a very different version of Moomins. Uh, speaking of which, um, Fantagraphics have issued very, very, very nicely redone editions of the newspaper strips this year. So if anyone wants to get Roger a present... No, no, um, no. And just hit me up on Twitter for his address. Uh, I will give you his address. I will tell you any personal information you, you would care to ask about him. No moments. So Beautiful Darkness, that's my first choice. Um... Zainab Akhtar on her Comics and Cola site oh, yes. has a really good write-up of it. Um, yes, I think I read that. A big close reading piece, which is definitely worth uh, worth going into. Um, my next choice would be The Wrenchies by Farrell Dalrymple. Mm. Everyone loved that at Thought Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. It's a huge, fully painted sort of kind of post-apocalyptic tale. It's the thing I feel guiltiest about not having read this yet. Yes, well, you're a bad person. You should feel bad. Um, you're not going to because, you know, sociopath, but um, you should feel bad. It's um, it's a huge and rambling and difficult cross between this sort of post-apocalyptic world um, where sort of adults become zombie monster G-men, essentially. They're in black suits and ties. And kids are the only ones left with any humanity in them to fight them. And for some reason, there is a supply of kids. They're being bred for something. Um, and these various roving gangs fight back. Aided by a scientist. They provide energy in the same way that the Matrix. Um, one of these gangs is the Wrenchies, and they're joined by a kid from 20th century, 21st century, who is mm. mentored or guided in ways by 
one of the one of the kids who first found out how to cross over into the Wrenchies world. And the whole thing is written partly as though it's an older comic. It's got a slight slightly hallucinatory dream logic that people could get away with in sort of in the sixties. And it's got a slightly simplified vocabulary in the same way, so it feels like that, but it also feels like uh, almost like a child is telling it, mm. which at various points throughout it is. It sort of cycles through different points of view, always coming back to the same sort of thing. Um, okay. And it is, it's, it's huge and it's wide-ranging, and it's just one of those things that feels like it's very difficult to wrap your head around. Um, it's the sort of thing that you would really love picking apart because it's very, very hard to understand really without reading uh, much about the author um, and his own personal oh, issues. Um, it's very, very hard to see what what is what without trying to extract it from Where the author's own life. Go. It's the first volume of a series. Oh, right. I thought it was standalone. So... I think if it hadn't sold, it probably would be standalone. But um, essentially, it starts out with various kids winding up in in the Wrenchies world across across various time, points in time via a magic medallion. Um, essentially, it's like going into Narnia, except you have to fight to the death almost every single day. Mm. Um, so again, it's one of those books that it covers boundaries between childhood and adulthood, and there is a sort of um, sadness to becoming an adult because then you are separate and different and you lose yourself um and the sort of obviously the zombies could be stand-ins for you know becoming career obsessed for developing drug problems for all sorts of things anything that sort of separates you from your former self um and and separating you from childhood self is that all of those are possible readings of this um, essentially it goes into a very very strange fight between a robot scientist and a gang of kids uh, and the forces of darkness and it could be read as such almost like a Goonies style mm-hmm. adventure but it's so big and complex and weird uh, it's one of those things that's just worth reading and letting it rattle around so you can try and pick at the threads I'd say it's very, very difficult to fully understand, even if the the sort of main narrative is almost straightforward. It's one of those things that is is very hard to sort of comprehend as the whole. Characterization? Characterization is not the strongest part of it. Uh, Sorry, just the reason I throw that out there is from what you've described, that sounds like the first thing to get lost in something structured like that. Yeah, characterization is not the strongest thing. So there are... Um, there are probably two, two or three characters who are quite strongly defined. There's the scientist who is sort of the adult character, but because he's sealed in a robot body, he doesn't age or turn into these things. Um, and then there are two children, one of whom you sort of see grow through to adulthood and fall apart, but he's the, you know, the superhero that keeps all of these, um, all of these things at bay from our world, even while he's got a crappy job and a drug habit. Mm. And then there's another uh, child who is sort of superhero obsessed and goes through as a child into the Wrenchies world and joins them. And he's sort of fairly well defined as perhaps having a slight learning disability and having this sort of, um, uh, 
without wishing to sound too simplistic an almost sort of autistic view of right and wrong a sort of notion of a notion of justice that is imp- it's it's never quite clear whether it comes from a comic book obsession or whether it comes from a sort of ha- having a slight learning disability or having some sort of social disorder mm-hmm. that means that his notions of what are right and wrong are very very defined and he finds it very hard to go outside of those right. so those characters are fairly well defined the rest of them without wanting to give too much away also live in a comic book world mm. the Wrenchies is a comic within the comic and those ones tend to be a slightly more gee whiz in their dialogue Right. they're not that but they're slightly closer to that I really want to read this you can you can. I also enjoyed The Motherless Oven. Is it uh, about gentrification? No. Um, that's one of the few things it's not about. It is about... It's one of those things that someone has created something that feels perfect and complete, um, which is rare. It's essentially set in a slightly wrong northern town some point in the 20th century. Middlesbrough? It might be Middlesbrough. Um, it doesn't get much more wrong than Middlesbrough. It might be Northern. I may, I may just have inferred that from various things. But um, it's about a kid who knows when he's going to die because it's part of your school records in the world that this thing is set in. Oh, yeah. Um, everyone, everyone should have some, some idea of when they're going to die. And everyone builds their parents out of brass and cloth and valves and... You know, you sort of see snatches of these things, and his his dad is a sort of sail barge type thing, and his mother is basically an angle poise lamp and a hairdryer, um, and it's never quite clear even to them, but children build their parents, and everything in the world is sort of full of household gods, but household gods are utensils, and they're things like clocks and radios, and which. In a similar way to what we described about processing the the universe, there's a bit of a thread actually to kind of weird understandings of childhood through what we've talked about. There is, yeah. Um, Kind of is to an extent how you process the world you live in as a child. Yeah. Mundane household objects are inscrutable mysteries. Your parents come from a different world. Well, there there are yeah obviously elements of that, and there's a character in Motherless Oven who. basically has a dial in his head that changes the sort of level of metacognition that he has um, and the understanding of the, the world as fiction. But they all learn the world as fiction anyway. They learn who, their who world as fiction. Who describes the experience of childhood as being, being in a land with an occupying force whose rules are never quite explained to you? Is that Gaiman? Or is it just Damien talking about Gaiman? I don't know. It works. It sounds about right, right. yeah. Which, parents, is why you should never say because I said so to your children. However tempting it may be. Mm, Just hit them instead. Carrying on. (laughs) So it's it's this beautifully constructed weirdness that captures sort of the way that you accept things as a child. So, of course the school is ringed with lions. Mm. Of course the police never sleep but move incredibly slowly so that they will always catch you in the end. 
Um, it's just full of all of these odd things that people accept. And the perverse internalization of the world that your parents tell you to believe in. Yeah, perhaps. Oh, or that you create for yourself. Um, it's full of... I mean, kids are the only one who have any sort of cultural cachet or um, creative ability in this world, really. The, 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 the parents are something that something very much outside of the self. And while there are human adults, they don't quite make sense either. They just fulfill those roles that they fulfill. They are teachers, they are police. They, they don't exist other than that in very mm. much the way that it's kind of weird to see your teachers outside of school when you're a child. Have you ever seen Blue Remembered Hills? No. Never mind. Well, all right then. Um, and it just feels like, it feels like this big realized thing it feels like a work of genuinely substantial imagination that just feels complete and whole and it works. It, it does not take long to get caught up and understand the rules of this world, mm. even when you don't understand it, which is kind of a, a, a beautiful thing to do. Mm. Um, and well, internally so consistent well. logic that therefore feels no need to explain itself is a beautiful narrative thing. It's full of these wonderful little um, plays on words as, words as well. So the household gods, for example, mm. they are just, yeah, they're utensils. There's, there's an egg timer household god, there's a radio household god, and they're like little Buddhas. And You've read The Ocean at the End of the Lane? Yes. Similar sort of weirdness. But I think my favourite my favorite little bit of wordplay in this was um, that you, you sort of hear about bands throughout the thing, and people mm. have band T-shirts and band posters, and it turns out that these are, of course, roving bands. <laughs> um, <laughs> They are marauding children. Um, and so when, um, when the main character sort of sets off on adventure with others, uh, he is then, you know, he's in the band. Um, and posters start to appear detailing their exploits. Um, it's just uh, glorious, glorious that little thing things like that. As a child where the end of the next street over is the edge of the world. Yes. Yeah, and it's got that sort of, um, it's got that sort of adventure type feel to it, and that sort of expansion of knowledge. But it's quite grim in a way uh, that I can't really say too much about without giving things away. Um, there's a there's a kind of there's quite a lot of fatalism in it. Uh, yeah, if you know you're gonna die. Well, whether well, it's sort of railing against that, but. There is there is sort of very much a defined edge to their world. Does it get Toy Story sad? I don't think it gets Toy Story sad because it's not really something you can comprehend in that way. Hmm. Um, it's it's it sort of reaches a point where the the sort of emotional heft is there's a, it, you you can't know hmm. what's happened. Yeah. Um, and so in that way it's kind of designed to be frustrating uh, but it's definitely not far off that I liked it a lot I want to read your recommendations Mr. Conroy that's kind of the idea them. that's the idea you're not meant to be recommending to me so drum roll an imaginary one don't hit the table or yeah. anything that's bullshit you've still got your no sound effects roll yeah Except for that one mic drop. That really happened. Yeah, but not in a like grandstanding way. You just fumbled. True. Um, 
You have to pick one. Pick one book what is better than the other books. Does it have to live and all the others will die? Because I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, they are inanimate objects. But what about their rich inner life? They are inanimate objects. You're really fucking hung up on Toy Story. <laughs> it was the first time I'd felt feelings in years. That was probably the Fanta. <laughs> you probably just had gas. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, this one's on this one's Armour. If yeah, you could recommend one book this year. It's 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 my pick. I've loved other things, um, but I think it's the most kind of special and captivating thing of the year for me. And my pick is The Motherless Oven. Really? Yes. I thought you were gonna say the Rinchies. No, Motherless Oven. They both do they they both cover a lot of the same turf. Um, they both do strange things about Childhood. They both are obtuse in interesting ways. Mm. Um, they're both artistically brilliant in very different ways. Um, the the, the Renchies is beautiful, fully painted, three hundred pages of just immaculate design. It is gorgeous. And then the, uh, uh, the motherless oven almost looks like it could have been drawn with. Marker pens on huge paper. It's, it's is it, beautiful, is, thick I, white lines. It's, there's almost a charcoal note in places. Yeah, similar. It's got that sort of where where a mark like a pen or ink is mm. caught on thick grain paper and skidded mm. along. It's mm. that sort of almost dry brush at the end. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's again brilliantly designed, very very expressive, um, but hugely different in terms of the art art style. Um, and just for the for the the way that it felt complete and whole, and for the way that it rattled around my brain for a long time after mm-hmm. finishing yeah. it, which you the Wenchies did too. Time. But yeah, the Motherless Oven was my pick of the year. Splendid. So um, yeah, we've well we've recommended you some comics, several of them that are, are new out new out this year, mostly I think. All this year, a couple of cheeky cheeky reprints, maybe. Um, certainly some stuff I want to read. The thing is, that's not all of comics, eh? No. Comics no. Comics does this ongoing thing. Apparently people like to make money or tell ongoing stories that their fans like. Weird. <laughs> Humans. So, what's still good? Saga. Still good. Hawkeye. Still good. Mind Management. Still good. The Wicked and the Divine. Probably still good. Poorly Drawn Lines. Still good. Oh Joy Sex Toy. Still good. That is still good news. Now we shall leave you, bar for because this is this is this has not been particularly festive. It is not. So we need to slip a little festive cheer to people. Slip it right up you. Yes, and as soon as the music finishes playing, Mr. Hart will be bringing you festive story time in the form of Naughty Boy for Krampus. Good night, and sweet dreams.
now Roger will read from A Naughty Boy for Krampus by Quinn D'Angelo. Don't, a voice whispered from the back of another corner of the room. Krampus will punish you if you are naughty. The voice came from the shadows to reveal the nude, pale German man also chained to the wall. His face, especially around the mouth, was completely swollen. What happened to you? Kurt thought as he took a major hit on the backside. Kurt screamed and looked back. Krampus had a long birch branch in his hand. Before he could plead, stop, Krampus hit Kurt again, this time on the butt. His ass was firm and it was the only part of his body without a California tan. Krampus continued hitting Kurt with the branch, but the pain quickly turned into spanking in Kurt's head. I must be hallucinating, he thought, as a sensual, exciting feeling took over his body. Kurt grabbed onto the beast's calves as the spanking continued. He felt his hairy legs for the first time, and caught with delight for the first time the strong, animal scent coming from between the beast's legs. Kurt's butt turned red, his eyes were coming down with tears, while Manolo and the German, hiding in the shadows, kept their eyes locked at the scene. A few spanks later, Krampus put his stick down. The beast gazed at Kurt's swollen red butt. His stone-cold eyes showed a glimpse of humanity for the first time. Kurt lay quietly recovering from the pain, almost relieved that it was all over, but he was wrong. Krampus leaned down and smelled Kurt's asshole. The beast's mouth was watering as he sniffed the naughty boy's perineum. Suddenly, Krampus opened his mouth. His long, pointed tongue lolled devilishly out like a tentacle. Kurt looked back at the German as his eyes widened in combined fear and lust. Kurt was too scared to look back at the beast as he felt a wet, gentle rim of Camp Krampus's tentacle caressing the sensitive walls of his hole. Krampus ate Kurt's asshole like nobody had done before. Kurt's fear quickly turned into bliss as Krampus's long fingers spread Kurt's butt cheeks and his demonic tongue drilled deep into Kurt's pink hole like a tentacle. Kurt had been transported from hell into heaven. He had forgotten the beast and imagined himself being fucked by the most skilled of all lovers. He could feel the beast's huge, throbbing muscle of love slapping against his bare stomach. He reached for Krampus's cock and grasped in delight. He grabbed the hairy beast's balls. He could tell they were filled with a warm load as he played with them. Krampus let out a gasp and kept rimming Kurt's asshole with his tentacled tongue. Kurt had not realised how well endowed this creature was until now. Krampus's big cock reminded Kurt of the brothers in the hotel showers. Though well endowed, they were no way, no, <clears throat> no way their dicks compared to the veiny, extra-big sausage he had in his hand. Krampus's huge cock was hard like a metal sword. It will cut me in half, Kurt thought as Krampus grabbed his hair and threw him down to the floor. Krampus pulled Kurt to his knee level. The beast opened his legs to reveal a massive, throbbing cock ready to play rough. Kurt had never seen anything like it before, a rod as big as his forearm. Kurt knew exactly what Krampus wanted. He had to be a good boy. Well, I'm very aroused. I'm just sad for the world. Can I go now? Merry Christmas, one and, and all. all.